This is the third episode in an ongoing series covering unsolved cases in Georgia and South Carolina. This series contains discussion of intimate partner violence. If you are in need of resources, please reach out to 800-799-SAFE or 7233 or thehotline.org. In order to raise money for Season of Justice, we're joining forces with our friends from Moms and Mysteries for the next month. We're raising money for Season of Justice's Family Grant Initiative. You can learn how to help support this campaign at the end of the episode. Since 2020, Season of Justice has raised more than $1 million in grants for more than 140 cases in North America, leading to six cold cases being solved. But Season of Justice doesn't do this alone. So we ask you to consider donating this month. This is The Fall Line. You've probably never heard of Tennell, Georgia. That's not surprising. It's not a big town. It's the midpoint between Atlanta and Savannah, situated in Washington County. The area was, and still is, a central point in the Georgia railway system. So central that during the Civil War, Sherman made sure to destroy it. According to the town's website, he, quote, heated and twisted the rails until they were useless. One thing Washington County is known for is its chalk mines. The county seat, Sandersville, is just three miles from Tennell. And Sandersville is famous in its own way. Not for anything flashy, of course, but rather for its industry. It's known as the Kaolin capital of the world. That's another way of saying Georgia white clay. The alumina silicate that, as the town website proclaims, is, quote, used in hundreds of products ranging from paper to cosmetics to the nose cones of rockets. That kaolin employs many residents in Tennell and Sandersville and other nearby towns. Washington County falls in what's called the White Gold Belt, quote, 13 counties along the fall line that girdle the mid-portion of the state. Kaolin means money, of course, and jobs. It also means 24-hour production and clay pits and miles of pipelines. It means mines. And as WMAZ describes it, acres and acres of open land with, quote, cliffs as high as 70 feet. The mining companies do patrol their properties, but it's a lot of ground. And with all those mines and pits and all that land, there are a lot of places where a person could disappear. The town of Tennell is a little over an hour south of Augusta, Georgia. Like Richmond and Aiken counties, which we covered in our last episodes, Washington County is in what's called the Central Savannah River area. But Tennell is much smaller than North Augusta, where we last left you. In fact, according to the 2020 census, there were roughly 1,300 people living in Tennell. Even if you included the population of Sandersville, you'd have fewer than 7,000 residents living in less than 20 square miles. Here's how our colleague, Renetta DeBose, described Tennell. We spoke to her about Sonia's case this summer. If I could describe Tennell, it would very much come as a close second to the town of Mayberry. It's, it's very rural. I mean, very rural. And so you've got your country roads that are probably state roads. 
You've got, you know, the situation where you turn down one country road and it's like maybe a church in the middle of that road. You've got in town, your high school, which is nicely upgraded, and they probably put all of their property tax dollars into building that thing. You've got a nice road going into town and out of town. And then you have a very nice public safety facility. And so there there have been some upgrades, as you can tell. They put their heart and soul into. But it's a small town. Everybody's really nice. It's not hard to find anything. But yeah, it, you can tell that it was one of those towns where there wasn't much, but just a lot of family love. You know, you focused on getting up, going to work, going to school, going to church. You might go out to the store. You might grow your own food. And, and that's your day, you know. I didn't see a Target or a Starbucks. Back in 2004, when Sonia Tukes disappeared, there were about 200 more residents there than there are today. Still tiny, really. You might meet new people when you went to the county high school, as all the Tukes children did. But it felt quiet and safe. In those days, Sonia Tukes' mother, Susan Rogers, said that it had been a trusting community. She told WJBF's Renetta DeBose, you quote, sleep with your window up, sleep with your door open. But after Sonia was gone, Susan said, quote, you better sleep with everything bolted down. Tennell had been in the local headlines in the years preceding Sonia's disappearance. Not often, but a few times. According to the Macon Telegraph, in 2001, quote, a former Tennell police officer was charged with burglary after a six-month investigation by the GBI, a man named Joseph A. Taylor III. Apparently, both Tennell and neighboring Sandersville police forces had requested the GBI's assistance in relation to, quote, allegations of officer misconduct regarding burglaries and thefts in the Sandersville and Tennell area. That isn't unusual, especially in small towns to seek assistance from the State Bureau. After all, asking the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to come into a case means access to many resources a tiny department wouldn't have. And that's why we mention this headline. The GBI's involvement is how we found the story of the robbery in the first place. It raised the profile of that particular case. And a renewed involvement of multiple agencies? That's how Sonia Tuke's disappearance came to our attention again in 2023. We already knew about Sonia. We'd hoped to cover her disappearance since at least 2019, when we'd first heard of her case. But we hadn't been able to connect with her family up until this point. So, when headlines suddenly appeared this spring, we took notice. Something was happening. There was a task force forming to address her disappearance. Until this news came, Sonia Tukes had little digital footprint, her NamUs page was created in 2018. Before that, there was almost nothing. Megan Good, who single-handedly maintains the database known as the Charlie Project, noted this issue. She made a post in 2016 expressing her frustration that there was so little available on Sonia's case. Megan wrote that she was having trouble building a good profile for Sonia on her database. Thankfully, a reporter named Skylar Henry who was then with WMGT-41, was conducting a much-needed, ongoing feature on Middle Georgia cold cases. 
In January of 2016, he featured Sonia's case. That's likely how Megan heard of Sonia in the first place, as she posted the same day Skyler published his piece. The information that he gathered filled the gaps that had existed since the initial coverage back in the early 2000s. But that was the extent of Sonia's media presence until this spring, when Renetta and other regional journalists featured her story. The occasion was the announcement of a multi-agency task force for Sonia, and the coverage was fairly widespread. Renetta's interviews with Sonia's family were key in that we finally had a way to connect. She put us in touch with Sonia's sister, Barbara, and that was enough. She wanted Sonia featured. The announcement of the task force itself was big news. As far as NamUs and other databases show, Sonia Tukes is the only missing person in Washington County, and it seems that their officials were focusing resources on resolving her case. According to Renetta's reporting, quote, In April, Washington County Sheriff Joel Cochran announced a joint task force had been created with agents from the GBI, the Sheriff's Office, and Sandersville Police Department. It makes sense to us to involve both Washington County jurisdictions, and, as we pointed out earlier, bringing in the GBI opens up further resources. That is especially true with the passing of a bill we told you about in our episodes on the murder of Travis Smith. The Coleman-Baker Act, which was signed in April of 2023, allows for much-needed cold case funding. It went into effect as of July 1st of 2023. The process requires GBI and local law enforcement review and cooperation on cases. As we told you at the beginning of the season, the cases must have had GBI involvement to be initially considered, but families may petition for consideration. Sonia's task force was actually announced in May, just a little before that official date. At that time, WRDW described the goals as, quote, re-examining all information previously obtained, along with any new information and evidence received. The specific reason why they had formed one at that moment was not explicitly stated, but we do know that the GBI was involved in Sonia's case early on. A May 24, 2004 Macon Telegraph article reported that, quote, two days after she was reported missing, the sheriff turned the case over to the GBI. Sheriff's deputies had searched rural areas of the county with four-wheelers and on foot. The article mentions that the Washington Sheriff's Office had also questioned friends, family, and co-workers before the handoff. When exactly Washington County became reinvolved isn't clear in the reporting, but we've seen various offices reignite efforts with support from state police or bureaus many times. We did reach out to Washington County multiple times for comment, but didn't hear back. But whatever the particular reason for the launching of the task force, whether it was the ability to utilize resources for new testing or searching, or to explore new investigative avenues, it's great to see. In our coverage, we have rarely seen such a force mobilized for a case, especially a case dating back nearly 20 years. When the announcement came, the agencies, community, and family of Sonia Tukes gathered for a candlelight vigil. At that time, Washington County Sheriff Joel Cochran released the following statement, which we will read in whole. Quote, We have formed a task force with the GBI, Washington County Sheriff's Office, and Sandersville Police to re-examine this case. This task force will start from the beginning and look for clues using modern technology to help us locate Sonia Tukes. 
This team consists of a new sheriff, police chief, new GBI agents, and a slew of new investigators working together with many new resources to bring this case to a close. I've committed to working with this team to bring Sonia back to her family and bring closure to her family and our community. I know that one person somewhere has that one piece of information that will make this possible. I ask that person to come forward and help us bring this case to an end. I ask the community to act as if this was their family member that is missing. To the person or persons responsible for her disappearance, I urge you to come in now with the information needed to bring Sonia home because we are definitely coming for you if you don't. Please continue to pray for this family and our team as we work to bring Sonia home to her family. Sonia deserves this. As Sheriff Cochran pointed out in his statement, Sonia does deserve this. And so does her mother, who has told numerous reporters through the years that she has taken down pictures of Sonia from around the house because it's just too hard to look at them. And so do Sonia's brothers and sisters, who spoke of their mother's pain at the vigil. According to WRDW, Sheriff Cochran said at the vigil, quote, We all can feel the pain. I cannot imagine the pain that the families got. We're leading up to the 19th anniversary of her disappearance on May the 10th, and no one deserves that. May the 10th, that's the date that everyone in Tennell has been thinking about, since the announcement came. But Sonia's older sister Barbara never stopped considering it, because the events of that early morning and what had happened in her life in the days preceding that may have led to Sonia's disappearance. In May of 2004, Sonia Luana Tukes was 22 years old. She'd lived in Tennell all her life. She was the second youngest of four. She was sweet, but also determined, someone who knew her own mind. Her sister Barbara told us that Sonia had always loved children, babysitting her relatives and other people's kids, and taking care of her own son. Here's what Barbara said. She was loving. She was a great mom. She was a hard worker. She was dependable. She was a dependable person. I mean, I was the type of person. She would give you her shirt off her back. That was the type of person Sonya was. If Sonya don't deal with you, she don't just don't deal with you. But she had a harder go. That spring had been particularly hard for Sonya. It wasn't her job or her family, but her relationship that was causing her stress. That's what Barbara tells us. So that second weekend in May, Sonia was going to try and relax. Saturday and Sunday were a chance for her and Barbara to try and spend some time together. Sunday, May 10th was Mother's Day. They saw their mother and got to go out for some fun. Sonia's son was staying with his paternal grandparents, so she was able to attend a gathering in the evening. They'd come home that night and gone to bed. The next day, Sonia had to work. Sonia had just moved in with Barbara. They should have had plenty of time together. But things didn't work out that way. Sonia was staying alone in the extra room at Barbara's place. The other bedroom was Barbara's, which she shared with her boyfriend. Since Sonia had a room to herself and everyone else was asleep, no one can say what exactly happened. But something did. 
According to a Macon Telegraph article that ran just weeks after Sonia's disappearance, Barbara noticed Sonia wasn't in her room in the morning, but didn't think much of it. At first, she thought she'd left for work. Then eventually, she told us that she wasn't happy because she thought that Sonia had gone to see her ex-boyfriend. That breakup had been the reason for her relocation to Barbara's house. When Barbara checked her phone, she saw something on the caller ID. According to the Macon Telegraph, she saw a number that had become familiar. It was a number that she recognized as a payphone. That solidified her assumption as to who Sonia had gone to see. Barbara intended to speak to her sister about it when she returned. But Sonia Tukes never came home, and that was all wrong. After all, there was her seven-year-old son to think of. Sonia's family knew that she would not have abandoned him. And it seems that law enforcement agreed. In the May 24th Telegraph article on Sonia's case, it stated that, quote, the GBI was treating the disappearance as a criminal investigation. In 2004, authorities might have already been on edge. We told you that the area was quiet, and that's true. But just before Sonia disappeared, there had been shocking news from Sandersville, only minutes from Sonia's home. And though there was no reason to believe the events were related, you'll understand why everyone would be on alert. According to the Macon Telegraph, on April 13th, 2004, just weeks before Sonia's disappearance, a man named Hosea Williams called the Washington County Sheriff. He had a confession to make. 13 years ago, on his 28th birthday, he'd killed a woman in Sandersville and buried her body in a clandestine grave, quote, next to a graveyard and across from a church in a part of Sandersville called Sandy Bottom. The man, Hosea Williams, decided to confess to the crime on his 41st birthday. The victim, Glenda Tarver, had been missing since 1991. According to her sister's interview with The Telegraph, Glenda Tarver was last seen on the way to a birthday party. When she didn't return, her family filed a missing persons report. But because she often traveled to see friends, many apparently thought that she just decided to stay gone for good. The thing is, though, that Glinda had two children. There was a lot of speculation, as her brother told the Telegraph. But, he said, he thought it was, quote, to avoid the grim possibility she was dead. From what we can see in local reporting, she was never investigated as a missing person. Many members of her family told the paper that they hoped she had left, because that was better than the alternative. But, as WDUN reported, when Hosea Williams, who had moved to Florida after the murder, confessed, it revealed a terrible truth, that Glinda had been in Sandersville all that time. There was relief, too. Her sister told WDUN, quote, It puts you in a closure. You know where she's at now. You don't have to worry about it. The saddest thing is she's been right here, in this county, all these years. Sonia's disappearance would not be treated like Glinda's. We cannot say whether the specter of that discovery had any effect or whether it was simply common sense that Sonia would not vanish. But stories of Glinda Tarver's discovery were running at the same time that Sonia Tuke's disappearance appeared in the paper. Still, the media focus on Sonia's disappearance was brief. Like many missing persons, she faded from the media for a long time. But much of her family remained in Tennell, and they certainly hadn't forgotten. 
Sonia had disappeared from her sister Barbara's home in the early morning hours of May 10, 2004, and she hadn't come back. There wasn't any closure for the Tukes family. They couldn't say that there was no more worry. Right now, we want to begin to take you through Sonia's story and her disappearance and the investigation that followed. What we know about her life mostly comes from her sister Barbara, who sat down with us for an interview this summer. Sonia Tukes was the second youngest of four siblings, three girls and one boy. Her sister Barbara tells us that they were all born a year apart and that she and Sonia were closest in age. Her mother, Susan Rogers, told WJBF of Sonia, quote, you tell her to do something, she'd do it. She was a good, sweethearted person. And Barbara told us that when they were little, Sonia was spirited too. Growing up in Tinnel meant that there was not a lot of variety in terms of activities, but they had family, and that meant a built-in group of playmates. Barbara said that Sonia was ready to organize all the siblings' games. She was the bouncy type. She was always trying to bounce all of us around. We used to always dress up alike. We used to always be outside all the time playing. You know, we used to do everything together. Hot stop, hide and go see, playing dirt, this red lights, just different games back in the days. We used to always like the Tino game. Man, she stayed on that Tino game from sun up, sundown. We could never beat her. We could never beat her. And then, like, playing cards and stuff. Oh my God. Could never beat her. Barbara told us that all the kids did well in school when they were young. It was expected by their mother. They were to be well-behaved and to take their work seriously. In school, they were all one year apart. As Sonia got older, she enjoyed the same things that her peers did. As the family told WJBF, Sonia was mostly, quote, a homebody who spent her time with family and at church. But Sonia also knew her own mind. As a teenager, that applied to her dating life. When she began attending Washington County High School, she met a boy and she fell in love. And it was an intense relationship. Though they were all from a rural and tight-knit area, Barbara tells us their family wasn't familiar with the young man or his family prior to Sonia's involvement with him. When we were teenagers in high school, she got pregnant at a young age. She got pregnant at the age of 15. And once she got pregnant at 15, you know, like everything just went down. That's when she started living with her baby dad and everything. And she didn't finish high school, but I did. All of us did. Me and my older sister, we finished high school, but she didn't. Sonia's family was unhappy that she'd moved out. Not just because they missed her and wanted to support her, but because they worried about the health of the relationship. Anyone who's had a baby knows it's hard, especially in those early days. So little sleep and someone who needs you around the clock. But Barbara tells us it was more than that. You know, when we was trying to talk to her and everything, and, but you know, you can't tell nobody. We were just trying to encourage her and everything, but you know, people had their own minds and everything. She used to say, y'all think 
y'all better than me. But it wasn't that, you know. It was just some, some stuff that you won't want your sister to go through. But she misunderstood y'all's concern. She did. And, like, towards the end, my mom used to tell her, you know, take my shoes off, take my shoes off. And what my mom meant by that, because growing up, she went through the same thing. And she didn't want us to go through it. We watched my mama and dad used to fight all the time. And she was just telling her that you don't need to go through the same thing I went through. So just take my shoes off and, you know, move on like I did. So she didn't want her to walk in the same shoes. Uh-huh. How travel. much contact did you all get to have with her when she was living there? I mean, we talked about every day. No, we always talked and seeing each other. It was just the point that what he didn't want. And then at, towards the end, like when I always had my doors welcome open for her. And towards the end, that's what happened. She came the week before she went missing. Just days before Sonia came to stay with Barbara, she and her boyfriend were both arrested in relation to what the Telegraph described in 2004 in the following manner. Quote, the two had been charged with simple battery May 5th after they fought with each other. In a 2023 interview with WJBF, current Sheriff Joel Cochran said, quote, It's my understanding that she had some interaction with law enforcement dealing with some domestic issues. Without seeing that report, we cannot know precisely what happened, and our FOIA request was not fulfilled at the time this episode was complete. But we do know that, according to her family, that was the precipitating event that led to Sonia finally moving out and to Barbara's home. And even with all that upheaval, Sonia still had responsibilities. Renetta DeBose, our colleague from WJBF, told us a little about Sonia's day-to-day life back in 2004. So Sonia had a job helping to build that highway, the one that I told you is one way in town and one way out of town, and it's really nice. She worked at a construction company that was contracted to lay down State Road 88. It's hard work. She didn't mind working. That company was Shepherd Construction, and she was expected there in the early morning for a long, hard day's work. It was already hot that May in the 80s, according to historic records, and she would be in that heat as the asphalt was laid. And she still had to juggle childcare and other responsibilities as well. That meant that, according to Barbara's interview with WJBF, Sonia dropped her son off with his paternal grandparents in advance of the work week that weekend in May in 2004. After such a hard work week, Barbara and Sonia wanted to have a little fun. They went to see their own mother, Susan, who cooked a big meal, and then they decided to go out, something that neither of them got to do very often. With work and family responsibilities, it was a rare treat, and Barbara thought that Sonia really needed it. It's like, it was Mother's Day. Her son was at his dad's house, and my son was with his dad, because it was Mother's Day. And we was trying to go out and, you know, enjoy Mother's Day. So that evening we was to a place and this is probably about 8 o'clock. She's like, come on, let's just go on in. You know, I got to get ready for work tomorrow. According to Barbara's interview with WJBF, when they returned home from the establishment, they bathed and got ready for bed. 
Sonia was dressed in her pajamas, which were green shorts and a black t-shirt. She wore black flip-flops as house shoes. That detail is important because the flip-flops weren't in the home later when it was checked. Sonia must have worn them outside. Barbara remembered them saying goodnight that evening. There was one other detail that didn't seem important. Not at first. And I was still on medical leave because I had just had a son, but I didn't have to go to work. So when we got home, she went in one house, in one room, I went in one room. And then the next morning, my boyfriend got up to get ready to go to work. And he started that door crack. So he just pushed it up, probably didn't think nothing else about it. He didn't think nothing else about it. And, you know, just left to go to work. So when Barbara woke up, she didn't think anything was amiss. Her boyfriend was at work, and at first, she assumed Sonia was too. She had no idea that the door was cracked when he'd woken up, and he hadn't realized that detail was important. We have to remember, Tennell is a tiny town. A cracked door on a Sunday night in a place where less than 1,500 people live is not the ominous sign it might feel like to someone living in a larger place. Barbara went about her morning. She didn't know that anything was going on until she got that first phone call. So then, 8 o'clock, her boss man called me and said, Toots haven't showed up from work. That's when Barbara checked the caller ID on the house phone. And according to Skylar Henry's 2016 reporting, that's when she saw it. A call had come in. According to the Macon Telegraph's original 2004 article on Sonia's disappearance, quote, she saw an early morning call from a payphone on her caller ID. And as we told you at the top of the episode, Barbara had seen that number before. It had appeared on the caller ID late at night other times too. It meant to her that Sonia had spoken with her boyfriend. She decided that Sonia had most likely gone to see him, she didn't want to get her in trouble at work, so she didn't say anything. But then it grew later in the day. She found out through another phone call that Sonia never arrived at her job. And it was one of her friends had called afterward. I didn't answer the phone because I didn't want to get in between anything. But when the boss man called, I was like, I don't know. She ain't in there. She ain't in the room. I don't know. He was like, that is not like two. And we know that wasn't her not calling in, not showing up for work. So after I got the phone call, I called my mama and let my mama know what was going on. It didn't take long for Susan Rogers to let her daughter know that she hadn't heard from Sonia either. And as the details piled up, that Sonia, who never missed work, hadn't even called in, that the late night phone call had come, that her bedroom was empty, Barbara began to grow afraid. When her boyfriend came home, that's when she found out about the open door. Sometime in the night, her sister had left. The call had come in around 1.30, and Barbara's boyfriend was up at 5 a.m. to leave for his job. They hadn't heard the call, but apparently, Sonia had. And for some reason, after that conversation, she'd left their home, still in her pajamas, she hadn't taken anything with her. Why would she? All signs pointed to her planning to come right back in the house. But something had stopped her. Next time on The Fall Line, the investigation into Sonia Tuke's disappearance.
At the time of her disappearance, Sonia was wearing her pajamas, a black t-shirt and green shorts, and black flip-flops. Her hair was in cornrows, and she stood 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighed around 175 pounds. She was just 22 years old. You can see her flyer on our social media. If you have any information regarding Sonia Tukes, please contact the GBI 478-374-6988, the Washington County Sheriff's Office at 478-232-1366, or the Sandersville Police Department at 478-232-6138. Callers may remain anonymous. If you know of a case that should be covered on the fall line, there's a link to the case submission form in our show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independently produced show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, and pay content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And please take a moment to rate and review our shows in your podcast app of choice. If you're interested in pre-ordering my book, which covers more than a year of my life working on a Jane Doe case and the world of forensic scientists who resolve unidentified persons cases, you can find a link in our show notes. It's called Lay Them to Rest, and it's out this October. Pre-ordering is a big factor in its success, so I appreciate it. We will be sharing some exclusive previews on the feed very soon. And if you pre-order the book through Hachette, you can earn exclusive bonus material like a full-length podcast episode covering a cold case I touched on in the book or a Zoom hangout with a special guest. And if you'd like to support The Fall Line and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon or Apple Premium. 100% of our Patreon and Apple Premium earnings go toward the Family Therapy Fund. On Patreon, you can get early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. We also have occasional video live streams and blogs, which all patrons can enjoy starting at just a dollar. If you prefer Apple Premium, you can subscribe there as well. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research assistance by Brian Warders, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrill. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Liz Lipka and Sarah Turney. This month, you can join us in supporting Season of Justice. In order to support our collaboration with Moms and Mysteries, you can share our social media posts regarding the campaign. You can join us today in supporting Season of Justice with a donation by visiting givebutter.com slash fallmoms or texting FALLSOJ to 53555. This nonprofit is very personal to us. Let us explain why. So far, five families featured on our show have had their awareness campaign grants funded through Season of Justice including billboards and similar campaigns for Chido Garabay, Leon Lorellas, Jackie Nguyen and Nut Fan, Janice Becky LaPlante, and Matthew Grant. We've been supporting this nonprofit monthly since November 2022, and we hope you'll join us.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.